Well, last Sunday we began a sermon series in the second half of the Gospel of Mark entitled, In the Shadow of the Cross. And the theme verse uh, for the life of Christ, the central focus of what he was all about is found in Mark 10.45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, he came to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now this not only tells us why Jesus came, but it also develops and outlines the two halves of Jesus' life, particularly as it's presented in the Gospel of Mark. Because in chapters 1 through 8, Jesus serves, he ministers. And by doing so, he proves who he is by what he does. Then the high point of his ministry for the first, really almost three years of his life, comes when Peter, speaking for all the rest of the disciples, says, You are the Christ. And it appears to us as though the disciples have got it. It appears as though they understand. But we know there is something very much missing in their understanding. They do not understand what it really means for Jesus to come and be the Messiah. And so following this, in the second half of of, um, Mark's Gospel, we see that Jesus ransoms. And here he presses his claims, but they are refused as he goes to the cross and is crucified and then is raised three days later. What is so interesting about all of this is as Jesus teaches his disciples, He moves closer and closer and closer to his final journey to Jerusalem, the place of his his rejection. And what is so interesting is uh, the first eight chapters, they cover just about three years of Jesus' ministry. The last eight chapters, one final year of his life and ministry. So important is this, That eight chapters does Mark give to this part of Jesus' life. Now you remember as Jesus begins to unfold this on the disciple, one of the things that he does is he encourages them. As the shadow of the cross begins to grow darker and darker, what Jesus wants them to understand, it is going to be worth it to follow me. And as we think about our own lives... The trials, the difficulties, the sufferings that we have to go through, Jesus wants us to know it is worth it as well. I wonder this year, are there some tough things we may have to go through? Are there some real trials on this journey with Christ? Well, you know that there are. And so what Jesus does is to encourage the disciples and to encourage us, he gives us a glimpse of his true identity. 
We call this the transfiguration. And last Sunday, as we began to look at this, we saw a very, very critical principle that I really believe the transfiguration is all about. Let's read it together again this morning. If we see Jesus clearly, we will live for Jesus courageously in tough times. That's what you and I need, is a clear vision of Jesus so we can follow him courageously. The place where Jesus took his disciples for this momentous occasion was Mount Hermon far in the north. Uh, This rises over 9,000 feet above the landscape. It is referred to in the Bible as the snow-capped heights of Mount Hermon. Uh, Last week, our Gideon said this is the first time he's ever seen this majestic mountain. And it was here that Jesus was transfigured before the disciples... And his majesty shone forth. We have a majestic Savior, don't we? Yes, we do. And what we see as we work through the transfiguration is there are four stages to it. And with each stage, there is a lesson for us. Now, last week, we saw the first two stages. There is the vision of glory and the visitors from heaven. And we learn the glory is forever. And we learn our wait is over. Let's take our Bibles and turn back to Mark 9 again. And let me read those verses and then we will continue on this morning. Opening your Bibles, listen to what the Word of God says. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, this is following Peter's great confession, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say. They were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Pray with me for a moment. Lord, the whole focus of our Christian life All that our church is about is that we would see Jesus only. That as we sang, as we opened this service, that he would be exalted more and more. Help us to have that clear vision of him for the days in which we live. We pray in his name. 
Stage number three in this amazing transfiguration is the voice that came from the cloud. And the lesson we learn here is that the Son has been revealed to us. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was ever a time to be in awe, to fall on your face and worship, it is this time, right? Enter Peter. Enter Peter. Peter promptly opens his mouth and sticks his foot in it royally. Doesn't he? Peter made three major mistakes that actually serve as a foil for what God wants to say on this momentous occasion. Here is the first mistake. He was talking when he should have been listening. I remember my old professor Howard Hendricks saying this, Peter, having nothing to say, said it. (laughs) And aren't you grateful for Peter? Aren't you just grateful for him? He seems so much like us, doesn't he? I mean, how many times have I been talking when I should have been listening? Please don't answer that question. It's very interesting here how sensitive Mark is in responding to Peter's bungling. Now, uh, this is a little bit of a rabbit trail here. It's not the main point. I don't normally like to go on rabbit trails, but I think this is a rabbit trail that is worthwhile. Mark says the reason that Peter spoke and spoke out of turn, he didn't know what he was saying, was that he was terrified. By the way, how many times have we done something foolish because of fear? How many times? Do you know that Mark was Peter's spiritual son? Did you know that? Peter was the spiritual father to Mark. Uh, Sometime if you go to 1 Peter 5.13... Peter refers to Mark as his son. Mark loved Peter. He loved him. In fact, most people believe that Mark is Peter's gospel, that much of what Mark learned about the life of the Lord he got from Peter. And Peter, uh, uh, Mark does not want his spiritual father to look foolish. And so he is very sensitive here to his spiritual father he gives to him an excuse that he spoke out of turn because he was terrified. Now let me just pause here for just a moment. As I said to you, this is not my main point. It's not the main point of this uh, uh, story at all. But I think it's worthwhile for us to stop for just a moment and ask this question. When our brothers and sisters mess up and bungle things Do we have this sensitivity? Do we? Can I ask a question this morning that I think we ought to ask? Is it safe to make mistakes in our church? Is it safe for us to make mistakes? 
You know what happens in the world when you make a mistake. They jump all over you. Jump down your throat. Somebody has said, you know, you pause five seconds at a green light and the whole world honks their horn at you. Isn't that true? The church should be a place where when we make mistakes, it's safe to make a mistake. Love is revealed right here. Mark is so patient and so sensitive to his spiritual father. Are we that way? Are we kind, sensitive, and patient when we make mistakes? I think there's a powerful lesson here. Here's the second mistake that Peter made. He put Jesus on a level with Moses and Elijah. Now, Moses and Elijah were great, but they're not on the same level with Jesus. I once heard the very well-known and famous pastor, W.A. Criswell, say comparing anyone to Jesus is like comparing a match to the incandescent sun. You do not do that. And as soon as Peter made this mistake... The Bible says a cloud appeared and overshadowed them. This was God's way of stopping Peter. Peter had to be stopped as he put Moses and Elijah on the same level with Jesus. And Peter was stopped by God in the most dramatic way, a cloud overshadowed them. Now, do you know, for Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament, they understood the tremendous significance of the cloud. Let me give you a little history here of the cloud in Israel's history. The pillar of cloud and fire appeared in the wilderness as the people left Egypt. The cloud covered Mount Sinai whenever Moses met God. The cloud passed by Moses in the cleft of the rock and he saw the hinder parts of God's back, says the Bible. The cloud filled Moses' tent whenever God spoke to him. The cloud filled the tabernacle in the wilderness. And when the temple was dedicated, the cloud filled Solomon's temple. The cloud left Israel at the end of the Old Testament in Ezekiel's vision. Now, get this. The cloud had not been seen in Israel for 600 years. Moses gone 1,400 years. Elijah gone 900 years. The cloud gone 600 years. This is a momentous, momentous occasion. Now, Read the last one with me. The cloud returned after Peter's confession of Christ. What did this mean? 
Two things were always associated with the cloud. The cloud was this visible symbol of the presence of God with his people. And when God appeared in the cloud, he spoke to Moses. Do you know the Jews dreamed when Messiah came that the cloud of God's presence would appear once again? You all are familiar with the book of Maccabees, which is not a biblical book, but it does contain history that is accurate. In 2 Maccabees 2.8, referring to the time of the end, this is what it says, Then shall the Lord show them these things, and the glory of the Lord shall appear, and the cloud also, as it was showed under Moses, and as it was showed when Solomon dedicated the temple. Every Jew dreamed for the day in which Messiah would come, the cloud would appear, and when the cloud appeared, God would speak again. William Barclay puts it so well, he says, In Jewish thought, the presence of God is regularly connected with the cloud. The descent of the cloud is a way of saying that the Messiah had come, and any Jew would understand it like that. You see, the cloud was confirming Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the cloud appears. And God speaks. May I say to us today, we do not believe in Jesus Christ Because of what a man named Peter said, we believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because God showed up in the cloud and spoke Himself. In fact, do you know, this was the very interpretation Peter himself put on this. Please turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, keeping your finger here in Mark. And I want you to notice how this is Peter's own God-inspired testimony to what transpired that day as the cloud and the voice appeared. Look at 2 Peter 1 and start with me at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father on that sacred mountain that he refers to earlier in the chapter. And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. And now notice the significance of it. 
And we have the prophetic word made more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first of all that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, we believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because the cloud appeared and God spoke about His Son. Now what God said on this occasion are some of the most important truths we believe about Jesus. And let's take a moment together to just look at them. Go back to Mark chapter 9 and notice with me verses 7 and 8. First of all, God said this, Jesus is the totally unique Son of God. He said, this is my beloved Son. Moses and Elijah were servants. Jesus is the Son. Their work was accomplished. His work is eternal. Read with me how the writer to the Hebrews, as he opens his great book about the preeminence of the Son of God, makes this very same contrast. Please read it with me. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Prophets were in the past, but now the Son has come. Once the Son has come, God has sent His very best. There is no one else. Why is it that we proclaim Jesus is the way and the only way? Because the answer is, He's the only Son of God. That's why. He alone can be the Savior of the world, our Redeemer and Lord. Secondly, Jesus is the supreme and only teacher of his church. God said in the voice, listen to him. Did you notice this? If the Son has come, then the Son must speak. And if the Son speaks, he is the final revelation of God. So that Moses and Elijah, what they shared was true, but it was partial revelation. But when the Son comes, the final revelation of God has come. And He is the supreme and only teacher of His church. Pastor John Calvin, who was the great reformer in the Middle Ages whose influence lives down to this very day, 
says something so very helpful here. Listen to his words. When God enjoins us to hear him, he appoints him to be the supreme and only teacher of his church. It was his design to distinguish Christ from all the rest and that he alone is appointed to be our teacher that in him all authority may dwell. No one, says Pastor Calvin, can be regarded a faithful teacher of the church unless he himself is a disciple of Christ and brings others to be taught by him. Jesus is the supreme and only teacher of our church. And we follow him as we are his disciples and lead others to learn from him. Third truth we learn. Jesus is the central focus of the Christian life. Did you notice what happened in verse 8? After the cloud descended and the voice spoke, the Bible says, suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw any with them but Jesus only. When Jesus appeared, everyone else who could potentially be a rival, as great as Elijah and as great as Moses, they disappeared. I love what Pastor Kent Hughes, who used to pastor College Avenue Church in Wheaton, Illinois, said. All of our theology, all of our experience, all of our work should ultimately come down to this, seeing Jesus only. Seeing Jesus When I was a student in college, in the heart of Chicago, I would go to Moody Church. Pastor Warren Wearsby was the pastor at that time. I would often hear him say this, I am no one's disciple, and I want no one to be my disciple. And I had never heard that before, and I thought, why would he say that? And now I know, when the sun appears, all rivals who could be compared to him must disappear. And he must have the preeminence. The whole focus of the Christian life is Christ. Do you know, it's probably true of us that we have not said our mission statement together this year, ever. You know what our mission is? Bethel. Becoming Christ followers, who, can you complete it with me? Who what? Grow. Connect. Serve and tell. But have you seen the fuller statement of it? Did you know there is a fuller statement of it? We, we have the abbreviated statement here in our sanctuary. Let, let me give you the fuller statement. 
Here's what we are all about. Becoming Christ followers who grow in our personal relationship with Christ. Connect with others in biblical community. Serve in our God-given ministries. And tell others the good news of Christ. Did you notice how it is all connected back to one person? Jesus Christ. And as long as our church and our lives stay connected to Christ as the focus, we are exactly where God wants us to be. Because He is the focus of the whole Christian life. Now Peter made one more mistake. Thirdly, he thought Jesus' kingdom was coming right then. Do you know in the book of Zechariah, I want to ask you to turn there, but chapter 14, verses 16 to 19 says, when the kingdom comes, the Jewish people who have trusted Christ and enter into the kingdom will celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. This is, by the way, why Peter suggested three tents, and he wasn't talking about tents that we use when we go camping, all right? He was talking about tents made out of green boughs. It's literally tabernacles. Peter believed with this momentous, majestic transfiguration that the time of fulfillment had come and he was now preparing to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles. This is why the cloud had to appear. God had to stop him and God said, Listen to my son. Listen to my son, because he alone is able to explain the meaning of this vision. And that's how the transfiguration ends. The way the transfiguration concludes is the vision explained by Jesus. And I want you to look at the words with me. Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, now notice how Elijah is really prefiguring John the Baptist. Elijah does come in the power and the spirit of John the Baptist, as other gospel writers say. First to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. He came in the ministry of John the Baptist. And they did to him whatever they pleased. You know, he was beheaded. As 
it is written of him. And in their perplexity and in their confusion and misunderstanding, the Son of God, who is the supreme and sole teacher of his church, clarifies everything. And he will do the same for us in a troubled world. Let me give you the explanation of the vision. And then we'll close. Let's read Jesus' explanation one at a time. Let's have the first one together. Would you read with me? Jesus' death and resurrection had to come first. You cannot have a glorious Savior in a kingdom where death, sin, and Satan still reign. Those enemies have to be defeated. And the only way they could be defeated was for Jesus to go to the cross, pay the penalty for sin, rise to defeat death and Satan, and then someday establish a glorious, perfect kingdom. It had to be this way. Second, read it with me. Suffering is the pathway first before glory. What did Jesus say? The scriptures say that it had to be this way. And the path for Jesus into his kingdom was the path of suffering, death, and then resurrection. It is our path too. It is our path too. The trials of this year, the hardships, the pain and the struggle, it is our path as well. Because suffering always in the plan of God precedes glory. I just heard this morning from Dave Michaels that another student died on campus this week, which makes three over the break. And it makes us aware of how short life is, how suffering can come unexpectedly and how important it is for us in this time of tragedy and difficulty to be sharing the good news so that people can be ready to meet the Lord and then look at Jesus final lesson please read it with me God's word is being fulfilled. It will not fail. Jesus says, all of this, just as it is written.
see, it's only this clear vision of Jesus that will help us follow him courageously in tough times. Let's bow together and thank him. Today, if you're here and you're not sure that you know Christ, would you turn to Him now? He is everything the Bible says about Him. We do not believe in Him because of the words of mortal men. We believe in him because of the words of the living God written down for us by the instrumentality of the eyewitnesses making the word of God true, inerrant, and infallible in all it says. And if you're here today and and you do not know Him, you need to come to know Him. Our hearts go out to the families of these students. We grieve and ache with their parents and loved ones. But we are reminded that no one knows what a day may bring forth. And this is a world of woe and difficulty and pain. But there is an eternal glory that Christ has won for us, and to enter into it, we must know Him as Lord and Savior. Would you turn to Him in your heart now and trust Him? And then for those of us that enter 2017 as believers, We are going to be called upon in various ways to be courageous as we follow the Christ road. And would you just say, Lord, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what I may be called on to face. But I know in that hour I will need a clear vision of my Savior who has accomplished all that I need. And will grant me the courage to live for him. Would you express that to the Lord today? Whatever your circumstances. Oh, Father, we love you today. May we see Jesus only. In his name.